So Nick, I just got my second dose of the COVID vaccine, so I'm super excited. Way to go. Yeah, I'm not feeling that great, but um, I still am really glad that I got this vaccine and I was able to read much more about it on the OBG Project's website where they have a ton of great information on COVID-19, both in and out of pregnancy. Yeah, the OBG Project, again, has an excellent online library. When you go straight to their website, obgproject.com, there's things ranging from COVID information, primary care information, the second trimester ultrasound atlas, grand rounds reports. There's just a lot of really, really useful stuff. You can also sign up for OBG First, which is their subscription service, um, where you can have access to all of the above, as well as create your own bookshelf so that you can go back to all the articles that you like to read about. So if you want to get a free year of OBG first. If you're a chief resident, head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and there'll be a link there for you to get your free year of OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs over over coffee. coffee. So today we're going to be talking about intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, which is quite topical since, you know, we just got an email about this from SMFM. Um, And we will be basing our talk today off of the SMFM consult series number 53. So if you want further reading, go ahead and check it out there. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So yeah, we'll talk about intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, what exactly it is, how we evaluate for it. We'll also review the differential diagnosis for itching in pregnancy generally and some on the dermatoses of pregnancy. And then finally, we'll discuss the evidence for the antenatal management strategies of intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy um, as outlined in the SMFM consult series. So Faye, um, I feel like this is kind of a loaded and weird question, but what is cholestasis? (laughs) Yeah, so cholestasis, or um, as you might see it abbreviated, ICP or IHCP, is a condition that occurs usually in the second and third trimester of pregnancy and is characterized by two primary things. The first is intense pruritus or itching. Um, Some patients have described it to me as, you know, itching that's enough to like drive them crazy because they can't go to sleep Mm -hmm. at night. And the second thing is elevated bile acids um, in the serum. A little bit more about that itching. Most people will say that it is usually itching that affects the palmar surfaces of the hands and the soles of the feet specifically, though it can be itching in other parts of the body as well. And it's usually rashless, unrelenting. And, you know, there are some things that we may prescribe to help with the itching, which we can talk about later on. Um, But really, a lot of people feel like this itching is something that they just can't get over. Women who are at risk of ICP include those who have had a history of ICP, um, those with hepatic disorders such as hepatitis C, non-alcoholic cirrhosis or pancreatitis, and um, those people with gallstones and cholecystitis. Recurrence risk in subsequent pregnancies may be as high as 90%, um, but there is limited data on this risk overall. ICP is also associated with multiple gestation, um, advanced maternal age, and there's likely a familial component to it as well. Um, So if, you know, they're mom had it, potentially they might have it as well. The incidence of ICP is around 0.3 to 0.5%, but has been reported as affecting up to as high as 15% of pregnancies. So, I mean, 
It sounds really silly that we're talking about this disorder that seems to just cause itching in pregnancy because it doesn't really seem to affect the mother otherwise. But really the reason that we care about ICP, not only just for this discomfort, this crazy pruritus, but it also can be associated with severe adverse perinatal outcomes, particularly stillbirth, um, meconium state fluid, and preterm birth. That's kind of one of the main reasons why we're talking about it today. Um, but Nick, let's take it back before we start talking about management and evaluation and things like that for cholestasis, because there are lots of things that can cause itching in pregnancy, right? Yeah. I mean, in the SMFM consult series, a fun statistic that I didn't realize um, is that pruritus is like a very common complaint in pregnancy. And actually, even up to about a quarter of pregnant women will complain of like itching as some issue at some point in their pregnancy. Um, but certainly 23% of pregnant women do not have cholestasis of pregnancy. So there certainly are benign conditions, but I wanted to review a couple today um, that we just don't get a lot of time to review otherwise that are the dermatoses of pregnancy. Um, so the differential diagnosis can include atopic eruption of pregnancy, AEP, polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, PEP, and pemphigoid gestationis, or PG. Um, I'll use the abbreviations because it's a little bit easier to say, and I know I'll trip up over the words if I try to say those things multiple times fast. So the difference with these, though, is that oftentimes these are all associated with rashes. So AEP, the first atopic eruption of pregnancy, is associated with an eczematous rash that kind of is like the terrible eczema you think about in kids on like your pediatric rotation as a med student, but put it now on a pregnant person. Um, so a big rash that breaks out on the face, eyes, neck, the antecubital popliteal fossa, trunk, and extremities. So again, really, really like classic eczematous rash, but in pregnancy. PEP, that polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, or with its former name that I think many of us already know, PUPS, the pruritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy. Say that five times fast. That is, as sort of the former name implies, itchy papules and plaques that often break out on the abdomen and the upper thighs. Um, this has a tendency to spare the arms, actually, so is another sort of diagnostic sign there. PEP is actually the most common dermatosis of pregnancy, so that's worth filing away. The last is super rare, pemphigoid gestation SPG. Um, but if you did a dermatology rotation in med school or probably just remember from step one studying that word pemphigus is not a great word. Um, it's derived from a Greek word meaning pustules. And so the characteristic skin change of this disorder are vesicles and bullae. Um, this is one that definitely requires consultation with dermatology immediately. Those pemphigoid disorders are kind of like burns that can affect a significant surface area of the body. Um, and so it's important to get those patients into seed derm, but we won't spend other time on this today. That's a whole other kind of very specialized episode, I guess. Um, and then kind of, you know, again, ICP is characterized by itching without rash. So it's important to consider a differential for that specifically if there's itching without rash in pregnancy. And certainly this can be totally benign. Um, but chronic conditions such as renal failure, HIV, multiple sclerosis, and psychiatric disease are just a few things that could be included in a very broad differential. 
the consult series has a gigantic table of things that can cause itching without rash um, that's helpful to look through. Any patient with generalized pruritus, though, particularly, again, that palmar and solar itching in the second or third trimester should receive an evaluation for possible ICP. Okay, so that was a lot about the physical exam, Faye, in terms of what we look for and sort of the differential. Um, but let's talk a bit further about how we evaluate for cholestasis. Yeah, after all that talk of rash, I'm also now very itchy. <laughs> so let's kind of get away from rashes for now um, and talk about ICP. So the big thing about ICP is that on your physical exam, there shouldn't be a rash. And you also want to look for other potential causes um, that might cause raised bile acids. So things like dark urine, jaundice, scleral icterus, abdominal pain, and colic are not very common with ICP. We then talked about, you know, a little bit of the laboratory evaluation. You probably already know this as well too. So the big thing is to remember to order your bile acids. Total serum bile acids greater than 10 micromoles per liter is the general cutoff for diagnosis of ICP. Um, some labs will ask for a fasting draw, which can be kind of impractical for a pregnancy evaluation. And trials reviewing this have demonstrated that the differences in random and fasting bile acids are pretty small overall in pregnant women. So feel free to draw at any time of suspicion. This also helps because many times bile acid measurements occur at specialty labs and take a few days to return. You should also remember that while you're drawing those bile acids to look at your liver function um, tests as well. So look at those transaminases because they may also be elevated in ICP. All right. So we have talked about laboratory evaluation and physical exams. What about the management of ICP? So we'll break this down kind of into maternal side and fetal side. But again, as you already mentioned, Faye, the primary adverse outcome we're trying to avoid and keeping our eye on the ball here is stillbirth. Stillbirth notably seems to correlate in terms of risk with increasing bile acid levels. You mentioned that we call diagnosis of ICP with elevated bile acids above 10 micromoles per liter. Bile acids above 40 micromoles per liter have been demonstrated to have a higher incidence of stillbirth in some studies, but it also has been associated with other poor neonatal outcomes such as meconium stain fluid, respiratory distress, and preterm birth. A large meta-analysis recently actually demonstrated that the highest risk for stillbirth and other adverse outcomes seems to exist for patients who have bile acids greater than 100 micromoles per liter. So again, keeping in mind these cutoffs of 10 for diagnosis, 40 for higher incidence of severe disease, and 100 for even higher incidence of severe disease is helpful as you're counseling patients and trying to remember some of the antenatal steps. Before we get to the fetus, though, let's talk about maternal benefit. So the drug of choice, as you may already know, is ursa-deoxycholic acid, or ursodiol. Um, ursodiol is effective in improving laboratory abnormalities associated with cholestasis of pregnancy, such as the bile acids or LFTs, and also over time improves itching. The nice thing about ursodiol, too, is that it doesn't increase any adverse fetal effects. However, ursodiol, unfortunately, doesn't decrease adverse fetal outcomes associated with ICP. So even though you're decreasing the bile acids ideally, the peak value of the bile acids usually at the time of diagnosis is still important to keep in mind. Dosing for ursodiol is around 10 to 15 mg per kg per day divided into two to three doses. The easy way to think about that is that it usually comes out to around 300 mg BID or TID or 500 mg BID. 
There are other medications that I personally have never prescribed or used for bile acid treatment. Um, those include cholestyramine and then a dietary supplement known as S-adenosylmethionine. Again, if you have someone who has a sensitivity to ursodiol or is not working, those are other medications you can consider. But personally, I've never used them before. Me neither. The other thing that kind of is hard to get at is symptomatic treatment of itching. Again, ursodiol will work over time, but as you mentioned, Faye, patients go crazy with the like very, very intense itching of cholestasis. And so we often will treat this with oral antihistamines, things like hydroxyzine or diphenhydramine. Topical antipyretics are generally unhelpful because the itching tends to be really, really widespread. Um, I'd hate for somebody to like cover their entire body in cortisol cream, um, and it doesn't seem to actually be that helpful too. In terms of following things for maternal benefit too, serial testing of bile acids is not necessarily recommended. Um, you might consider it on a case-by-case -case basis. Again, peak values are what has been reported as being the most significant with respect to stillbirth risk. So if you diagnose somebody in the early second trimester with cholestasis, it may be worthwhile to continue following it occasionally. Um, or if somebody has persistent symptoms or something else just doesn't seem right, following another bile acid level. But there's no recommendation on doing that routinely. Um, it's also worthwhile kind of in this category to note, it's not uncommon for the itching of ICP to precede rising bile acid levels, even by up to a few weeks. So in women who have a negative test initially, repeating bile acids later on is actually a very reasonable approach because they may have ICP that just doesn't show up yet. Some may also practice in this particular scenario by diagnosing ICP clinically. Um, and so you may start ursodiol even empirically in the absence of elevated bile acids. Again, SMFM says this is a reasonable approach, but certainly again in this situation, be aware of your differential diagnosis. Keep an open eye for other pathologies if you do start ursodiol empirically. So I talked a lot about mom, Faye. Let's talk about baby now. That's what we really are worried about in ICP. Right, right. And of course we care about that paritis, but you know, that paritis doesn't ultimately lead to any bad outcomes other than making the person uncomfortable. Absolutely. So for fetal benefit, really our only defense against stillbirth is the use of antenatal testing. Um, so antenatal testing should begin with the diagnosis of ICP at a gestational age when delivery would be performed in response to an abnormal test. So, you know, if you're diagnosing somebody with ICP and they are early second trimester, obviously it doesn't make sense to start testing them at 23 weeks. SMFM notes that most obstetric providers will perform some sort of antenatal testing, though the optimal frequency is unknown and even the effectiveness of testing is uncertain. Kind of the story of antenatal testing everywhere. Sadly. <laughs> so considerations for an antenatal testing schedule should be gestational age, severity of cholestasis, so for example, the peak bile acid level, and patient values. Ultimately, to try and avoid stillbirth, delivery should be undertaken at an earlier gestational age. In women with clinical diagnosis of ICP, meaning no bile acid elevations, just clinically itchy, um, delivery should not occur at less than 37 weeks. And this is according to the new consult series 53. In women with ICP and bile acids less than 100, delivery is reasonable between 36 weeks to 39 weeks. 
Data here is more challenging and less convincing on risk of stillbirth and when it occurs. It's reasonable to consider managing women with lower values, meaning less than 40, towards the latter end of this window, and the women with higher values, greater than 40, towards the earlier end. But, you know, again, there are institutional protocols and certainly um, follow those protocols for your specific institution. In women with ICP and bile acids greater than 100, delivery can actually be as offered as early as 36 weeks. This is based on data suggesting in this high-risk group, the risk of stillbirth substantially increases past this gestational age. SMFM even mentions in this group delivery between 34 to 36 weeks, provided that one of the following criteria is met. So one, there's excruciating paritis, unremitting to pharmacotherapy. So even if they're on ursodiol, they're taking Atarax every single night, they're still itchy. History of ICP-associated stillbirth less than 36 weeks in a prior pregnancy. Pre-existing or acute hepatic issues with clinical or lab evidence of worsening hepatic function. And in this rare scenario, SMFM does advocate for use of steroids for fetal lung maturity prior to delivery. All right, Nick, so I think um, we have covered the basics of ICP. Why don't we go ahead and summarize? So we started off talking about exactly what was cholestasis, this strange condition, again, diagnosed generally in the second and third trimester, characterized by intense pruritus, generally affecting the palms and soles without a rash and elevated serum bile acid levels. Risk factors include prior history of ICP, women with hepatic disorders, and then women with multiple gestations, advanced maternal age, and a genetic component probably exists as well. And again, the reason that we care about cholestasis of pregnancy, even though it's just an quote-unquote itching disorder, is that there are associated severe adverse perinatal outcomes, particularly stillbirth. We then talked about other conditions that can also cause itching in pregnancy. This includes atopic eruption of pregnancy, which is an eczematous rash that breaks out on the face, eyelids, neck, inside of the elbow, trunk, and extremities. We also talked about polymorphic eruptions of pregnancy, formerly known as PUPS, which is usually a rash on the abdomen and legs. Um, and finally, we talked about pemphigoid gestationis, which is a very rare disorder that you really should call your dermatology colleagues for um, because it can form vesicles and bullae that affect the body almost like a burn. There are many, many other conditions, um, but make sure that you are ruling out ICP. In terms of the evaluation for ICP, again, physical exam is important for the lack of a rash, as well as you should look for other hepatic causes, things like dark urine, jaundice, scleral icterus. Bile acids are the laboratory of choice. Again, that bile acids above 10 are the traditional cutoff for the diagnosis of ICP. You do not have to have fasting bile acids to evaluate for them. You should also generally evaluate for transaminases at the time of any search for a diagnosis of ICP. In terms of antenatal management, we'll divide this into both maternal and fetal benefit. Remember, diagnosis is when bile acids are greater than 10 micromoles per liter. Um, and with bile acids of greater than 40, um, there have been a higher incidence of stillbirth in some studies, though in other studies, the highest risk for stillbirth and other adverse outcomes are when bile acids are greater than 100. For mom, make sure to try and help decrease the amount of itchiness that sh she has. And the drug of choice is usually ursodiol that can be given at around 300 milligrams BID or TID um, or 500 milligrams BID. Usually topical antipyretics are unhelpful just because of the widespread nature of the itching itself. And remember, we don't usually recommend serial testing of bile acids, but it may be worthwhile to take a look at the bile acids again, for example, if someone initially has a negative test because that pruritus can precede um, an elevation in bile acids. 
For the fetal benefit and avoidance of stillbirth, our only true defense is the use of antenatal testing that should start at the time of diagnosis of ICP, provided that it's a gestational age at which delivery would be performed in response to an abnormal antenatal test. The timing and frequency of antenatal testing is really uncertain. Again, the mechanism for stillbirth and ICP is thought to be a sudden event, so really the antenatal testing may not be very predictive of stillbirth overall, but considerations for a testing schedule should be gestational age, the severity of cholestasis, and the patient's values. Ultimately, to avoid stillbirth, you need to deliver at an earlier gestational age. Women with a clinical diagnosis of ICP per the new SMFM consult series should not be delivered before 37 weeks. In women with ICP and bile acids that are less than 100, delivery is reasonable between 36 and 39 weeks. In women with ICP and bile acids over 100, delivery can be offered as early as 36 weeks, but even earlier by 34 weeks if either excruciating pruritus unremitting to pharmacotherapy, a history of ICP-associated stillbirth prior to 36 weeks in a prior pregnancy, or pre-existing or acute hepatic disease with worsening hepatic function are present. Again, if you're considering delivery before 36 weeks, you certainly should consider the use of antenatal steroids for fetal lung maturity. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to give us some support, go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. If you give us some support, we may give you a shout out or even some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Or if you want to correct anything from this show or any other shows or just email us, you can find our email at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>